I, I just feel like uh, Stuart and Marvin were just the perfect pick for this week. We just really, yeah, give Stuart a hand. And uh, and that, you know, it was really right. And I'm, I'm so pleased to have uh, Stuart with us for one more message. Stuart, you're ready to go? Hallelujah. You got a testimony as good as that one, as powerful as that? Oh, man. I know, I know you had great stuff. Okay, so let's pray. Let's pray for Stuart. Stretch out your hands. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you are alive in us and in Stuart, and your word is alive, God. We're asking as he preaches, it wouldn't just be preaching words off a page, but it would be the living God. And we ask for ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Congratulations on your anniversary. My parents are celebrating their 48th today. And so, so that's a powerful testimony. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, turn your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16. And I want to um, continue to talk about the subject of our hope. You know, last night uh, we talked out of Matthew 24 about uh, the necessity of, of having our hearts not troubled and how to and, uh, uh, grow and enjoy in the midst of, of crisis. Uh, and the way we do that really is by making the gospel um, uh, the paradigm through which we interpret the things that are happening around us. Now, when I talk about the gospel, I don't just mean, and, I, and the scripture doesn't just mean the message of forgiveness. Um, that is a that is an introductory part of the gospel where we come into the kingdom through the born-again experience because of the blood of Jesus Christ and so forth. But the gospel narrative is, um, is um, much broader than that, if I can, if I can say it that way. It, it, it ultimately is talking about the story or the plan of God's redemption to actually establish his kingdom here on the earth forever. And that's where this thing is going. In fact, even the Lord's prayer, he says, Lord, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where this whole thing is going for us. When I, when I look at the news and all the craziness that are taking place, I, in my heart I go, ooh, this is terrifying, but we know where this is going. This thing is going towards a climactic end, and that is the establishing of God's kingdom on the earth. But Matthew 16, Matthew 16 Verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Probably the most important question that Jesus asked of his disciples, and I believe it's a question he's asking of us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray, Psalm 119, verse 18, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to your law, Lord, that we would see glorious and marvelous things. Father, we say that your law is exceedingly broad and that the entrance of your word brings light. So, Father, would you do what you enjoy to do, and that is to give us the spirit and to give the things that belong to Jesus and make them known to our hearts. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here Jesus is, uh, the disciples, they had just come back from, you know, a ministry trip, so to speak. And, and Jesus asks them this most important question. Uh, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And I believe that that's the question that the Lord will be asking of the church today. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14 it says, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so the answers that people are giving about who the Son of Man is are not the right answers. And even so, we could answer the Lord the same way. Well, some say you're this, and some say you're that, and some say you're the other. But it's as though the Lord 
looks at that and goes, don't you realize that the confession of these people about who it is that I am actually is a reflection of your lack of clarity of who I am. And so he then ups the question to them. He says, okay, he goes, are you clear who it is that I am? And that's the, I would say, that is probably the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest battle over the church in the earth right now is this issue. Who do we say that Jesus is? Because our understanding of Jesus influences everything starting with the gospel. To the measure that we understand Christ, according to the scripture, is to that measure that we actually understand this glorious narrative, this glorious storyline called the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, verses uh, 11 and 12, Paul says something very interesting. He says, I did not preach a gospel that was taught to me by men, but I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. That as Paul, as Christ was revealed to Paul, in fact, a few verses later in verse 15, Paul actually says, look, he says, here's my calling. He says, I was separated from my mother's womb. It pleased God to call me from my mother's womb for two reasons. Number one, to reveal his son in me. That was the first purpose of Paul's calling. It was to receive the revealing of Christ on the inside that the Father by the Holy Spirit would continually unfold the glory and the beauty of the Son of God on the inside. And then Paul goes on to say that I might preach him to the nations. And so the proclamation of Christ that the apostle engaged in was deeply connected with the revealing of Christ that was happening on the inside by the Holy Spirit. Paul's gospel understanding flowed from the understanding of a man, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the very cornerstone of our faith, the very foundation upon which our lives and our ministries and the church, so to speak, is built. It's built upon that understanding. There's a lot that we can say about that this morning in terms of how much the things that are being built today are not being built upon that foundation. It's a vast subject. It's a very important question that the Lord asks of his disciples. It's a very important question that he asks of us today as well. I'm going to talk this morning about the war of hope. There is a war of hope that the Holy Spirit is waging in the hearts of the believers. And it's a war to divorce ourselves from this age. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about how Christ came to deliver us from this present and evil age. And that is not just being delivered from sinful things, it's being delivered from his perspectives. It's being delivered from his values. It's being delivers from its ideologies, its principles, that we would be reoriented as citizens of another age, which is very, very real. The New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, has much to say about the ages to come. As I mentioned last night, that um, God created us with eternity in our hearts, that there's something about this battery called the soul. Just like a battery needs to have both, you know, the positive and a negative, so to speak, in order to function properly, even so our heart has to be connected with the present as well as with eternity for it to function rightly. We have to be connected with both realities. So God made us that way. He put eternity in our hearts. And so there is this thing called the ages to come. The scripture has much to say about it. Anyway, Paul says that Christ came to deliver us from this present and evil age. In fact, what is interesting is, you know, we talk about the end times, but do you realize that the Bible does not talk about the end times? It talks about the end of the age. It's a big difference. It talks about the ending of an era 
and the inauguration and the introducing of another era. And it's this eternal era that comes from the establishing of God's kingdom. It doesn't talk about the end of times. It talks about the end of the age. I became a believer when I was 14 years old. And uh, as I mentioned last night, you know, my father, uh, I grew up in a diplomat's home. And through a whole series of events, don't want time to get into it, we ended up in a situation where um, we uh, essentially were refugees, so to speak, where we had a passport. And on the passport, actually, it was written an alien's passport. It's a passport issued by a government, but you're not a citizen of that, of that nation. You're not a citizen of any nation. And it is during that time that I became a believer. And again, through the whole series of events, I, I remember being in this conversation with uh, a couple of my friends that I just met. And, you know, like you do when you first meet people, you ask them where they're from and so forth. And, and you know, I ask them where you're from, they tell them where they're from. And they ask me where I'm from. And all of a sudden, I felt I had no permission to say where I was from. I remember the power of it. Though I was born in the Netherlands, grew up in South America, somehow, knowing that I had this passport that says I was an alien with no citizenship, I could not say, hey, I was born in Holland. All of a sudden, I remember at the age of 14 feeling this vacuum in my soul going, I don't know where I'm from. And it was in that context where I became a believer. And so for a period of about two years, as I'm trying to get to know this newfound faith in Christ and trying to make sense of the scriptures and so forth. You know, I'm just trying to do my Bible reading as my early teachers had taught me. And I'll never forget coming across Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And I will never forget the power, the arrow, by which that struck my heart. And I went, wow, this is not just and a cool analogy, this is a reality in the heart of the apostle. That there truly is a king, there truly is a kingdom. Yes, we are Americans, but we are also part of a holy nation, the Bible says. The early church talked in terms of Jew and Gentile, these two races, and said, but God is raising up a third race. They would talk in those terms. You and I truly are a part of a kingdom who has a real king. Incidentally, he's not just a spiritual king. He's a social king. He's a political king. He's an economic king. I mean, the scripture has much to say about what he will do in terms of economics in the ages to come. What he will do politically in the ages to come as it pertains to international affairs and urban policies and all these things. I mean, the prophets have much to say about that with regards to the future in the age to come. Under the leadership of this king, of Jesus Christ. And so there's a confession that must enter into our souls again. And again, as I mentioned last night, the Lord is kindly and gently creating an environment. He's creating this pressure. It's like the walls are just, it's like the people of God are standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's horses are chasing us down and we're going, ah, we're going to drown. Somebody please split the sea. And it's just closing in, just little by little, just closing in on us. And the, the uncomfortableness of it, the uncertainties, the ambiguity, the anguish is going to drive us to start asking questions. And one of the questions that we're going to have to, we're going to, have to end up asking is, as believers, what is really going on? I thought that being a Christian now gave me the ability to more fully live out the American life. And the Lord goes, actually, no. That's not really what I had in mind for you. I have something much more glorious. And that's, again, that's not, it sounds like I'm knocking on the American law. I'm not. What I'm hitting at is our hope. I'm not hitting on 
the need for domestic tranquility and finances and taking care of our kids and schooling and peace and our boundaries. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about our hope. I'm talking about our confidence. Because it's where our confidence gets shaken. That's where fear and anguish and just strange things enter into our thinking and come out of our mouth that have nothing to do with the gospel, but we actually delude ourselves into thinking that it is the gospel. And so there's this confession that has to enter into our soul, and it's the confession of the men and women of faith in Hebrews 13, that they were confessing that we are strangers and pilgrims in this life. Strangers, pilgrims, essentially men and women who don't have their home here on this earth. See, the Lord, by the grace of God, he graced my heart to, at the age of 14, to connect me with this feeling that I had no home on this earth. And then to connect my heart with, no, you do have a home, and it is the in the ages to come. I knew, I talked last night, I talked about a Supreme Court. I knew something was up. When a very strange thing happened, here's what happened. Personally, for about 20 years, I've engaged in much dialogue with people about the subject of social justice, and particularly false justice. I actually wrote a book on the subject of false justice. Many, many, many hours talking with people about different things that are manifesting in the subject of false justice. And and in the, in, in the midst of the subject, what is interesting is how many Christian leaders were flirting with the idea of homosexuality in clergy and the, sancti- uh, and, the, uh, and the condoning of gay marriage for at least 20 years. Sometimes it would show up in the news. I would send up... Articles to some of my friends, response to be like, oh, man, gee, was bummer. Man, interesting times, and then life moves on. But when the Supreme Court made a decision, oh, no, the whole world is falling apart. Let's call a fast. And I went, whoa, 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 time out. That right there showed me that our concern for the church is, is seemingly insignificant than our concern for the nation. We are more concerned about the destiny of our nation than we are the destiny of the church. I'm concerned about the destiny of the nation. But when I read the scripture, I see nations rise and I see nations fall. That's what we see in scripture. But what we see consistently, and we're looking at just a moment in Matthew 16, Jesus said this. He goes, I will build my church. That should give us an interpretive lens of what is actually taking place. That we begin to divorce ourselves from this present and evil age and confessing, acknowledging, agreeing with, locking into the reality that we are strangers. That means when you're a stranger, I, I'm, I'm what it, I, I have a very, um, they have a very, some of you may know this term, I'm what they call a third culture kid. That is a sociological term for just confused. <laughs> and when you're a third culture kid, because I've lived in five different countries growing up in my life, and and when you're a third culture kid, you never quite feel at home. It's the very nature of being a third culture kid. Or it takes you a while to kind of figure out how to feel in a particular place. I'm going through that right now. I've never been here. It's my first time. I'm kind of going, okay, what? what's, what's going on there? And, well, yeah, I'm very, but I'm very familiar with this feeling, so I'm not freaked out by it. But that's what it means to be a stranger. A stranger, you kind of go, I just don't quite know how to feel. 
I know I'm an American, but something just doesn't feel right. I'm a stranger. I'm a pilgrim. I'm on a journey. Hebrews 11:13 says, it needs to become part of our confession again. We are in this world, but we're not of it. We must engage in this world and its process, but we must not, but we don't think like the world. In every aspect, in every aspect, not just personally, but as well as the way we view things of society. We have an entirely different orientation. And so what happens is in Matthew 16, but who do you say to him? And in verse 16, very powerful thing happened. Simon Peter, he answered and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I, I wish I could have been a fly in the wall in that conversation because you can, you can kind of get this sense of feeling. You, 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 you get a sense of Jesus' excitement in verse 17. He goes, oh, he goes, this is great. He goes, blessed are you, Simon Peter. He goes, you are a blessed man. He says, but what you just professed to me, there's no book, there's no conference, there's no classroom that could have taught you this. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal. You have been visited, Peter, by my father. Only my father, who is in heaven, could have revealed this reality to you. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, before we continue, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, you know, they say that it's the favorite, it's Jesus' favorite title, the Son of Man. Even more than the Son of God. He is the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. And the Son of Man has, uh, has two, at least two meanings. One, that he is a human. He is the son of Adam. That's actually the, the, the Hebrew word there. He's the son of Adam. He's human. Profoundly human. He is so human that he is even a son of Adam. Fully human. And fully God. It is amazing how human Jesus is even this very day. He understands humanity because he is a man. It's Amazing. I'm sure he stubbed his toe every now and then growing up as a kid, being awkward during, during his puberty years. Yes, I'm sure his voice cracked in Hebrew. <laughs> no, he was fully human. We can't humanize Jesus enough. But yes, he is the son of God. He is fully God. The uncreated God to be worshipped and to be adored. But there's a second meaning to him being the son of man, I believe. And that is pointing us back to Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to turn there today. But in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel, he is in a time of tremendous political uncertainty. He is in Babylon as a captive in Iraq. And tremendous things are happening. The, the destiny of his own nation looks like it's in jeopardy. Undoubtedly, there's uncertainty about the covenants that God made with the people. For them to be in enemy territory is so far from what God had promised Abraham. The prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're alive at the same time, and they're talking about the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. It's not a pretty picture. And in this time of uncertainty, the God of Abraham comes to Daniel and he gives him a message of hope. And here's the message of hope. Daniel, it's going to get worse than this. <laughs> it's going to get way worse than this, but in the midst of it, I'm going to raise up a man. And he will be my king. And he's going to establish my kingdom on the earth. And so Daniel 7 is a vision about the destiny of a king, his kingdom, and a people that will possess that kingdom. And the New Testament lets us know that the people that will possess that kingdom are you and I, people that are born-again believers. And so it's a message of tremendous hope 
even for us. But but in the, but in the very but if you can picture this, the the, the, the prophet he's having a vision of the the the, uh, uh, the the winds of heaven are blowing. There's the storm on the sea, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, in the eye of the storm, he has this vision and he sees one like the Son of Man. And this one is being brought before the Ancient of Days. In all authority, in all dominion, all power, all glory, and all honor is given to this man. And as I said, his kingdom will go on forever. And I love how it says next, and even forever and ever. To really drive home the point, or the point of the, the, the certainty of this kingdom that will be established on the earth. Under the leadership of this man called the Son of Man. The writer of Hebrews tells us that God said he's going to shake everything that can be shaken. He said, but we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Which tells me to the measure that you and I are being shaken by the shaking it is to that measure that we have our foot in another kingdom. But as we begin to put our foot in the kingdom that we've received that cannot be shaken, that's where we find peace and joy. And that's where we begin to find that voice to be a voice of comfort, both to those in the kingdom and those outside the kingdom to turn them to, turn them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel 7 is a powerful passage. The point is that every time Jesus says, the Son of Man, who do you say that I, the Son of Man? Daniel 7. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Daniel 7. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Daniel 7. Every time he's talking about the Son of Man, he's pointing to the fact that he says that I am the one that the prophet spoke of. And so Peter is really excited about this. He goes, you're the Christ. He goes, it's you. He goes, you're the Daniel 7 man. And Jesus goes, oh, Peter. He goes, you have no idea what just happened. This is a great day. Peter is so excited. He is absolutely ecstatic as a Jewish man. He goes, there's hope for the nation. He is the king. This is how humans think. This is the, there's hope for the nation. That's the king. It's him. I'm one of his closest friends. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be rolling. I am going to be rolling. That's how that goes. All 12 of them were gone. Man, we're in. We are in. LinkedIn, business cards, corner office, here it comes. We are, it's on. Because we're in the inner circle. We're going to make Israel great again. And Jesus is about to drop the bomb. On them. He says, hey, you want to follow me? He says, yeah. He goes, let me tell you something. He goes, in a, in, in, in a little while, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me on the cross. And if you want to be in my inner circle, guess what? You have to pick up the cross, too. And their nationalism crumbled right in front of their own sight. And Peter had no grit for what Jesus just told him. It actually said that he went to him, and he rebuked him. He rebuked him. And Jesus exposed his thinking as satanic. And he defines satanic as this. It's not some horns and, you know, doing some weird cultic stuff. He said, this is what's satanic. It's when you've got in mind the things of man, not the things of God. He says, you're being driven by an entirely different reality, Peter, and are completely disconnected with what it is that I'm about. I am about the cross. Beloved, the cross, that, we, again, we can't really fully appreciate what it was that Jesus was saying to these guys. The cross was the, 
number one Roman instrument to just bloody and put to shame their enemies. And Jesus says, no, this is where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. And guess what? He says to the disciples, he goes, there you must go as well. To Peter's realization of Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, undoubtedly and understandably stirred up his own nationalistic expectation as well as his sense of personal destiny in the midst of the narrative. Jesus, however, deals a death blow to the narrative when he proclaims that as king of the Jews, his pathway to greatness is the cross. Beloved, the pathway to greatness is to the cross. You know, I'm just going to say it. If, if God was to say, America, I want you to make you great again, I'm kind of going, I kind of hope no. Because I've seen what you do to people and nations when you want to make them great. I'll give you an example. And in Genesis, Jacob, you know, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. Isaac, I'll make you a great nation. Jacob, make you a great nation. Jacob has a son called Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. Jo Jacob finds out that Joseph is in Egypt. I love this story. God appears to Jacob and says, Jacob, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. And he says, for there I will make you a great nation. What Jacob did not know was what's going to happen 400 years later. And when we read Exodus, we see they actually became a great nation. They were multiplying to the point that Pharaoh was afraid of them. When God makes a people great, when my God makes a person great, he drives them to the agony of the cross. So if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter's response to King Jesus' statement about going to the cross was at least in part politically charged, responding to his political expectations of the Messiah and his perspective of how the hope of the nation would unfold. And this, this hope of the nation was very much so in the mind of the apostles, and understandably so, and rightfully so. They just were confused about the pathway. Right before Jesus ascended to heavens, Acts 1.16, they asked him, ask him the question again. He goes, is it now? Are you at this time going to establish the kingdom to Israel? He goes, he goes, no. He goes, just get power and go tell people about the kingdom. See you later. <laughs> and Peter is so gripped by this. Then Acts 3, verse 19, he tells Israel, he goes, guys, repent, repent so that the times of refreshing would come and that, heaven, that Jesus, whom heaven must retain, would come back for the restoration of all things. This thing was deep in the heart of the apostles, but as time began to unfold, they began to understand that it was coming through the reality of the cross. There was and is a hope for Israel, but it is through the pathway of the cross. There is a hope for all the nations of the earth, but it comes through the pathway of the cross. Christ strongly challenged Peter on his earthbound perspective and his man-centered interest his personal and nation's hope and the global future is found in the cross. The cross is a very troubling message. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, the message of the cross is foolish. It's so not the way that we think at all. It's mind-blowing. I mean, I understand why Peter tripped. Because we're tripping every day over this, whether we realize it or not. There's nothing that makes sense about the cross. Nothing. In fact, Paul said it this way. He says, the message of the cross is foolish. 
And the word that literally means idiotic, moronic, it's stupid. Because here's what God says. I am going to rule the world. What's your strategy? I am going to die. You're going to do what? Hey, I'm going to die. And you're going to remain dead? No, I'm going to raise from the dead. And then you're going to take over. I goes, no, I'm going to send to the heavens and sit upon the throne. And do what? Make intercession forever. It's, it's, it's not the way that we think. To the point that the apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, he makes this very interesting statement. He said, had the kings of this age known who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And what Paul is saying is this. He said, had the kings understood, had Pilate and the Pharisees and all those guys, had they understood that killing Jesus meant their demise, they would have never killed him. I mean, it was the biggest upset. It was the biggest ambush in history for God to become a man, and he checkmated them when he went to the cross and he died. It was over, finished, done. And for 2,000 years, he's inviting those who will inherit and possess that kingdom to embrace that same mindset because the very philosophy, the very ideology, the very power of the cross is the very thing that permeates the culture of this thing called the kingdom of the Son of Man. Its wisdom, its power, its rightness, its brilliance is the very thing that orients the way that this kingdom goes forth and this kingdom advances. so different than the way. Isn't it interesting that, I find it interesting, I was reading the book of Revelation the other day, and I realized something very striking. And I found it interesting that Jesus Christ did not have to magnify himself by putting the other guy down. Politicians to here and there and everywhere, the only way they can separate themselves is by perpetually putting the other guy down. And Jesus just simply shows up in his brilliance. We go, wow, who are you? He goes, you are stunning. He goes, you are amazing. You are worthy to be worshipped. He is completely different than all the kings of the earth. For he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who he is. So Matthew 16, we're going to end with this. Jesus points to four very important realities that we cannot let the enemy cause us to lose sight of. Matthew 16, four very important realities in Matthew 16. The first thing is that he is the son of man. First thing he says, he goes, I am, he acknowledges that he's the son of man, pointing to Daniel chapter 7. Because I'm the one that's going to bring the hope to, to this nation and to the nation of the earth. I am the Savior of the world. It's who I am. And Daniel 7 says there's a storm that will come throughout the ages. But I will navigate you through this storm. And there will be much trial and tribulation and suffering in the midst of the storm. Paul, in, 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 uh, in Acts 14, I think it's verse 32, he said, it's through many trials and tribulations you will enter the kingdom. There's no doubt that he got this idea from Daniel 7. The pressure that will come against the precious saints that are highlighted there. It's a glorious chapter that God gives his kingdom to this man, and this man turns around and he shares that kingdom. It says, that the, it says that the saints will 
It says they will receive and possess. In other words, they will enter into the kingdom, but not only will they enter into it, they will have ownership in the advancement of that kingdom. That's what it means to possess it. It's a powerful story. So Jesus acknowledges that a bunch, but he acknowledges that first point there in Matthew 16. The second thing that Jesus does is he identifies for us his central mission. And his central mission is to build the church. I will build my church, Jesus said. And I will build it upon the understanding that I am the Daniel 7 man. I will build my church upon that rock. One of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts, he wants to magnify to us and in us again the glory and the beauty of this thing called the body of Jesus Christ. The church is beautiful, glorious, the expression of him in the earth. Ephesians 1.23, it is the fullness of him that fills all in all. Tremendous glory in the eyes of God as the church that she will walk in before he returns. I will build my church. And so when we begin thinking about him building the church, then all of a sudden we are not so eager to join the rhetoric of, yeah, let's go bomb Iran, when we realize that the fastest growing church in the earth right now is in Iran. Now, should we bomb or not bomb? I don't know. But what I do know, if we start bombing, I have got brothers and sisters in Iran. And so now I go, oh, Lord, what do you think about the nuclear deal? I don't know, but I'm praying for the church in Iran right now. That's all I mean by gospel orientation in the way that we think. Then we begin to have this concern for the church, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he talks about his sufferings. He says, I was beaten three times with rods. I received, you know, 40, you know uh, uh, 40 minus one lashes. He goes, I was left out in the deep, hungry, naked, persecuted by brethren, chased by wild animals. And, then he, and I love this. He goes, and besides all this, what comes upon me is my daily concern for all the churches. That the Holy Spirit would foster in us the concern that lies in the heart of Christ for the church because it is the central mission of what he's doing. I will build my church and I will do whatever it takes to build my church. I will put whoever I want in office to build my church. I will take anyone out of office to build my church. I will let any amount of wars take place to build my church and I will quench wars in order to build my church. I am building my church is the primary thing that's on my heart and on my mind. I will open borders and close borders because I am the Lord of the nations. Because I'm building my church. Do the best you can. Vote with conscience before me. But know this, the hearts of all the kings are in my hand and I turn them as I see fit. Why? Because I'm building my church. I am the Lord. Daniel chapter 2, verse 22, I raise up kings and I tear them down, including in America. Just because we can vote doesn't mean that it bypasses that sovereign system. He is so smart that even in our voting, you know, November 8th, we're going to vote, we're going to do our best. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is going to be the last one to show up right there, right before midnight, cast his vote, and the whole thing... <laughs> He will mess the whole thing up. You wait and see. He says, I'll be all things to all men. I'll vote too. He just talking about his vote just shifts the whole thing. <laughs> Thirdly, so he's the son of man, number one. Number two, the central mission to build a church. Thirdly, that we embrace the cross as the pathway of following Jesus' leadership. Oh, man, and I hate that part. Heck, I hate that part as a husband. You know, the, the whole thing, you know, husband, love your wife. You know, ain't talking about bringing flowers. He's just loving the way Christ loved the church. Like, oh, <laughs> really? 
Husbands, love your wives. That's the easy part. It is as Christ loves the church that bugs me to no end. And if it doesn't bug you, you probably have not quite understood what it's meant to love her as Christ loved the church. <laughs> the pathway of the cross it becomes a very definition of love. It becomes a very definition of righteousness. It becomes a very definition of wisdom, the, the truth and the reality of the cross in Christ. Paul says, I am determined to not know anything among you but Christ and him crucified. That was Paul's one thing. David says, one thing I want to do is I want to gaze upon the beauty. And Paul says, yes, I'm going to zoom in on that beauty. And at the very core of that beauty is a man crucified. And I'm determined not to know anything but him. Because in him are found all the wisdom of treasures, of wisdom and knowledge and insight and all the things that we need for life personally, as well as making prophetic sense of what is happening within the culture. Embrace the cross as a pathway to follow Jesus' leadership, the way to discern God's interests, and the anecdote against a man-centered worldview and earthbound perspectives is the cross. The way that we can gauge whether someone even is giving us wise counsel is, is it reflective of the cross. Christ and him crucified. Oh, that wondrous cross is a rock of stumbling of which, of which against we stub our toes often, myself included. If I'm going to be really honest, I more don't like the cross than I like it, but I'm asking the Lord to help me like and appreciate the cross. Fourthly, Jesus continues in verse 27, and he talks about the fact that there's a climactic hope. It's called that he's coming again with great glory and the rewards for our labors and if for the, the, excuse me, the rewards for our labors and the responses that we have in this life. There's a climactic hope. That this one who died, rose from the dead, he ascended, and he's coming back to establish his kingdom on the earth. And his people will receive and possess that kingdom and to rule and reign with him forever through the value system of the cross. Beloved, Jesus Christ, on the wedding day, he's wearing his favorite suit. I call it the lamb suit. It's the marriage of the lamb. He's wearing his lamb suit. Is that which is most reflective of the very core of who he is and the value system that he insists upon in this marriage? The cross. Meekness. Humility. Kindness. Love that is defined by not only seeking your own interests, but the interests of others. Beloved, we're not just marrying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're also marrying Isaiah 49, verse 7, the servant of the rulers of the kings of the earth. It's Christ, the servant of rulers. I mean, can you imagine that? That's who we're marrying. That's who we are betrothed to. And, and this life, I'm going to end it with this story. And this life is about us being trained to embrace that value system in everything that we say and do so that we can rule and reign with him in the age to come. Several years ago, I was, uh, my wife and I went to go watch a movie, and uh, somehow we, in, uh, <laughs> we, 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 uh, we messed up on the, on the timing of this uh, of the film, and we got there an hour early, and uh, uh, instead of driving back home, we decided let's just go inside. And I usually got I'm a bit of a bookworm, so I usually got a book or two in the back of the seat, and say, "Hey, I grab one." She grabbed one. Let's just go in there and wait. And so you know, we're reading. We got our popcorn early, and you know, we got our you know soda and all that kind of stuff. 
and we're doing our deal, and you guessed it, the movie's about to start, and it's all gone. No more popcorn, and no more soda. And somewhere in the annals of history, I've read that you never miss the beginning of a movie. That's not good. You, you don't miss the beginning of a movie. And somehow, both my wife and I are convinced of this reality, and we're both just kind of caught up in this whole thing. And the man of God that I am, <laughs> I look at her, <laughs> I say, hey, you're going to get some more of this. <laughs> you get some more popcorn? <laughs> and the woman of God that she is, she's like, no. <laughs> so it all bounces itself out right there. And so we're both just sitting there, consumed by this glorious thing that you're not supposed to miss the beginning of the movie. And I'm sitting there. <laughs> and I, I wanted some popcorn. You know, but, came, you know, but you know what? But this strange thing happened. I wish it happened more often, but it was a strange thing that happened. This whisper entered into my heart so clearly. And it went like this. I am training you to be a king. The power that entered into my soul, I couldn't give a flying flip about the stupid movie at that particular point. The power that entered into my soul to get up and to actually do the role as a husband, which is to serve, that entered into my soul. Beloved, that's what this life is about. Beloved, that's what 2016 is about. It's about the divine coach, the trainer, creating the optimum environment for the church to be trained, to respond to the cross, to have our minds reoriented through the lens of the gospel. Yes, we are Americans. Yes, yes we're in it. And there's no problem with engaging it as long as you remember we are not of it. We are of another age. And our leader is the Son of Man. Father, thank you for who you are. Let the worship team come up. Lord, we love you. Father, will you do in all of us what you did to your servant Peter and do what flesh and blood cannot do? You should reveal in us Christ. As you did with your servant Paul, it pleased you, Father, to reveal your Son, Christ, in him. Even so, Abba, would it please you to reveal Christ in us. May our days, Father, be filled with the unfolding of his personality, the fragrance of his presence, his wisdom, his ways his plan, his purpose. May the reading of his scripture, Father, be that which draws us ever so close to him, that our hearts would burn as he opens up the scripture concerning himself. Father, in the, in the middle of the storm, in the center of the storm, Lord, we set our eyes upon one like the Son of Man, seated upon the throne of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, the Son of Man, to whom you've given all authority in heaven and on earth. We say yes to him, to follow him. Teach us. Holy Spirit, Great teacher, teach us. Teach us through the word. Teach us through conversation with one another. Teach us in the night seasons. You cause our hearts to instruct us even in the night. Dreams, opening up the scripture. Your presence. We invite you, Holy Spirit, the great divine instructor, the teacher to lead us to do the things you enjoy the most and that is to make known the things that belong to Jesus and give them to our hearts.
Oh, the fragrance of your name. Beautiful, Jesus. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Thank you for saving Tom in such a powerful way. Lord, would you do more of that in him and through him to others. And thank you for saving us. May in the next five to ten years come just an inning gathering of a harvest of people in this city, in this nation, responding to the gospel, the message of the cross. Reveal Christ in us. Reveal Christ through us. You are our blessed hope, Jesus. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's just worship the Lord together.
trust as we got boys. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Spirit me, Spirit lead me where my trust let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. My faith would be made stronger and the best to save you. Jesus. Wasn't this good, guys? Hallelujah. I'm going to ask Pastor Wayne to come and close us in prayer. Would you do that for us, Brother Wayne? Father, it's good to just get a little taste of glory. Hallelujah. We praise you, Father. We give you honor and glory. Lord, thank you for calling us to walk close to you. We don't understand all that's involved, Lord, but that's all right. And we just put our hand in your hand today and say, go, Lord, and we want to follow. And Lord, may that be the commitment of each one of us. And as we're following, would you open doors of ministry and witness? Would you help us to be able to speak peace into people's lives? Help us to know that it's not our ministry, but it's yours. Thank you. Let each one go home now and just reflect on what you've said. And Lord, teach us, continue to teach us. Oh, we love you, Jesus, so much. We just praise you and give you honor and glory today. Hallelujah. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Praise God. Thanks, Pastor Wayne. See you guys in the G-Hop. Amen. I love you all. Thank you so much.